You know, it's uh, we're, we're celebrating the 500-year uh, anniversary of, of the Protestant Reformation, and we've been doing that by reflecting on the five solas of the Reformation. And um, we turn today to the to the sola known as Solus Christus, Christ alone. I want to speak into that by first quoting from one of the reformers, Martin Luther. In one of his fam- in one of his sermons, he said this. What I am telling you is that it is easier for us humans to believe and trust in everything else than in the name of Christ, who alone is all in all and more difficult for us to rely on him in whom and through whom we possess all things. Now, in the Reformation context, uh, Luther particularly was, was subject to this as well. He later on describes how the devil does not intend to allow this testimony about Christ He devotes all his energy to opposing it and will not desist until he has struck it down and suppressed it. In this respect, we humans are weak and stubbornly perverse and are more likely to become attached to saints than even Christ. And then he goes on to say, For I too believed and preached these things. Saint Anne was my idol and Saint Thomas was my apostle. I patted myself substantially after them. Others ran to Saint James and strongly believed and firmly trusted that. If they conformed, they would receive all they wished and hoped for. Prayers were said to St. Barbara and St. Christopher in order to avert an early and sudden death, and there was no certain uncertainty here. Now, it's tempting to read these words as an illustration of what was happening during the time of the Reformation. He will go on to talk about the, uh, the indulgences practice and the manner in which we would have to supplement even the meritorious atoning sacrifice of Christ by virtue of our continued works and how it was devised that you could even get a merit for your work if you were to give money to the church and and church whole churches were built out of this conscience binding practice of trying to find assurance of salvation through giving through the church and on it would go but the temptation would be for us to be well self-righteous if perhaps we are not ourselves praying to saints and things of that nature. And that would, I think, be a wrong thing to do. Let's remember that the Catholic Church, even then, was orthodox. It was pro-Nicene. It was pro-Chalcedon in their Christology, in their beliefs. They understood with us the necessity of Christ. Now, listen to that word, necessity. The necessity of Christ, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, they were all confessed. But here's the thing. What the Reformation was about was not the necessity of Christ, but the sufficiency of Christ. Is Christ enough? And particularly what I want to set your mind into thinking about is, is even here, you would suggest, we would suggest that we weren't so far off. For instance, the Catholic Church would have understood the incarnational ministry of Christ and that once and for all sacrifice of sin for our atonement, for our justification. Did you hear me say that? Maybe you hadn't thought like that if you understand the debate. They would have looked back into the 2,000 years before and they would have seen that what Christ did was finished as a sacrifice of atonement. Some of you are going, well, what was the beef? It really comes down to this this ascension ministry of Christ. Is Christ's ascension ministry sufficient? 
And this comes down to this idea, well, when Christ ascended, did his humanity ascend? Was he in the flesh ascended? You see, because the very basis of Christ's mediatorial atoning sacrifice, the very basis of of Christ was that he was both God and man, and therefore he was suitable to be a mediator between God and humanity, right? And so with that idea, then the question would be, how then is Christ's sacrifice applied? To what degree now, if Christ is not fully in the flesh and fully human in his ascended state, are we now in need of yet another mediator? to mediate the mediator, Jesus Christ, to us. Did you get that? If, in his ascension ministry, there is yet a mediator needed to mediate Christ to us, for Christ is no longer fully human and in the flesh, that would open up the Pandora's box. The Pandora's box now of yet another mediator, and thus comes in this idea of the Mariology the idea of saints, the idea of the church as the flesh of Christ, and off we go. Now that was a heavy introduction. But here's where I want us to think as we go to this passage. I wonder, do we struggle with that today? I mean, do we, whether, whatever, and however you describe yourself, whether you're Protestant, whether you're quote, evangelical, in quote, Whatever this word is, um, I wonder, are we prone, like Luther said, not to struggle, even if you're a Christian here, and I don't acknowledge that, you know, I don't, maybe you're not a Christian, and that's fine, and you're here just checking this thing out. But if you were, perhaps you would even come to the place that, yes, I hold to the necessity of Christ for salvation. He is the universal mediator for all people. But then you could just as well, in your mind, even if unintentionally think, but for it to get applied to me, for me to have access to it, I need something else. It might even come in the form of nationalism. If Christ is a necessity for, let's say, the utopian vision that we all long for called heaven, but maybe we need to, it's Christ plus a reformed nation state and all of a sudden our political passion becomes a religious passion oh no we wouldn't we wouldn't make that mistake today right uh-huh. maybe it's that we need a mediator in the form of let's say another form of government another kind of wisdom maybe we need rationalistic wisdom that would come with it to be added to Christ's wisdom. Maybe we need, and you can see where this goes. And so what I want us to do is look at this passage that we heard read today. And do it, I hope, not in a sense that we want to judge and condemn our brothers and sisters of yesteryear, but as an impetus from this remembering that there was a revival 500 years ago that rediscovered the sufficiency of Christ, might we too need to pray for such a revival that we might also be restored. And as you turn then to the passage, I want you to notice, first of all, that it is a prayer. It's a prayer that actually begins, if you remember, in chapter and verse 9. And it's a prayer for two things, basically. But notice, first of all, 
what he means in this prayer. He says that you may be filled. Now let's stop there. Filled means what? Complete. Means sufficient. Means if you're thinking of a cup, there is no more room to put any more water in it because it's filled up. So the moment that Paul is talking about being filled, he's talking about that which would completely satisfy, which would completely uh, complete that vacuum that we may have for the things that he is here about to pray for. He's praying that we might be filled fully and totally and perfectly with what? With all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is to say, that kind of wisdom and understanding that would enable us to fully participate in the life that God has intended for us, the abundant life, the utopian life even, the heavenly life. Is it possible that Paul was really meaning this? I am praying that you might be filled, that is, this is all you're going to need, with the spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might then walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, often when I heard that phrase, I'm thinking of moralistic kind of dutiful ways, you know, to walk with the Lord in a manner of the Lord means I'm supposed to walk in this kind of uh, morally correct way. I think Paul is referring to something much deeper than that. See here, and you'll see it, he talks about this way of life that bears fruit in every good endeavor and increases in this great knowledge of God and experience of God. I think he's talking about this this idea of of wisdom and understanding that would enable us to participate in the life of God, that would enable us to participate in in the life that God has established that we can participate in when he promised even Adam and Eve this beatific and life giving world of a promised land that we know now is heaven itself. He's saying, is it enough? Christ's wisdom, his methods, his means, are they enough? These, quote, ordinary means like ministry of word and sacrament and the communion of the faith uh, of the saints, and of a governing uh, body, a shepherding body that he's instituted in the New Testament. Would those things possibly be enough, the wisdom of God, that we could, with those, be brought into this amazing and eternal life? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ enough? He says, I pray that you be filled with the spiritual wisdom and understanding, which we know to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you might walk, partake fully of Christ. And the second prayer is not only all spiritual wisdom and understanding, but that you might then be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you might endure with great patience and joy. That is, the power to persevere, the power to, to, to get there, if you will, to this great promised life that God has for us. These are pretty lofty things to pray for, right? I mean, he's, he's really praying. I, I just wish we had more time to put this in the context of redemptive history, but he is praying what every one of us really pray. If I were to stop and ask you, you know, really, Really, what is it you want? And you would probably say something about that's up at level one. You know, well, I just wish we had a little more money. I I wish I could just get this degree. Or I wish I could get married or get unmarried. I don't know which it is. Or whatever it is. 
you're saying, I just wish. I, I, I have this solution in my mind. I'm thinking about this thing. If this could get better, then God, life would get good. Maybe you've put your passion in politics. If only we could get the right candidate. If only we could get the right system in place. Man, we could start seeing this abundant life. Maybe you would put your, your, your thoughts on, on some kind of an, if I could just have this experience. If I could just find somebody that could help me feel this way. Maybe through music, through art, through, I don't know, psychedelic drugs. I'm showing my age. That was my, uh, you know, the point being that, that, that um, we end up starting to, to think of these things. What do you really want? But then if I were to ask, but, but what would that get you? What is it you want because of that? Then you'd say this, and then you'd say this, and then you'd say this. Finally, if we dug deep enough, you know what you're going to say? I just so want life that is full, that is complete, that is, where there's peace, where there's love, where there's power and life and vitality. And, oh, man, I want to I sit on a hill dripping with the pleasures of, of wines. And, you know, you could just come up with it. And there's all these images in the Bible like that. Of course, you're asking for paradise. What we really want, something in us knows we were prepared for a utopia. You know, it's the most voluminous of all literature is utopian literature. You know that? There's been more written on utopian dreams and, and aspirations than any other subject in the world. So I read in the New York Times. It is something we desperately want. And what Paul is saying here is, I am praying. You're Christians now. He's picked that up. This is picking up with what he's already said we are. But I hear you. You're not, I'm not praying for what you already have in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We've already established that you have that, Christians. I know what you're struggling with. You're struggling with the disillusionment that life after Christianity just doesn't seem to have what I was hoping it would have. Now, just tell me I'm not talking to some people here. I know I've been doing this for a while. And disillusionment is one of my great struggles. You know, just all this work, all this stuff, and it just doesn't seem like the world's changing a whole lot. I mean, really? If I were to look at the world right now as evidence that Jesus Christ is making a difference in the world, I would be pretty upset. Because it just doesn't seem to be working very well. Right? And what would I do? I'd probably start looking for ways that I could at least in some ways artificially get the sense that it's working. I mean, maybe if I could just do something that would make this room, even at 1230, filled and packed in, in a multicultural assembly of, of, of God's people, that would do it. Oh, there it is. I feel it. I feel the power. You know, we could do that. We, we could get a, a really big band, and we could, we could do that. We could, we could get folks in here. But the question would be, is it Christ? Or is it Christ plus the big band? I'm not picking on big bands. I could pick on anything here. What is it? It could be Christ plus politics. I'll tell you one way to grow a big church. Just preach politics every Sunday. You'll exclude half 
of the human race in America, but you'll get everybody else, and it'll be full, and it'll feel experience, and it'll feel great. You could do that. The biggest churches in America, according to Robert Withnow, a Princeton sociologist, are those who are politically active in their pulpits. Of course, it's all blue or red, but that's not the problem. Do we believe that there's all spiritual wisdom and understanding and that there's all the power sufficient to bring you and your loved ones into what you're yearning for and what they're yearning for? Paul knows, let's just call the frickin' bluff, that even people who call themselves Christians are doubting it. They're not doubting that Christ came. They're not doubting Nicaea. They're not doubting Chalcedonian. They're not doubting that he lived and died and resurrected and all that. That, his Christ, that the necessity of Christ even. They're doubting that Christ in his ascended ministry remains both God and human and therefore is still the wisdom and the power sufficient to apply his life and work to us in a way that will get us to our utopian dream. That was the problem 500 years ago, and I hope I've made a case that it's a problem now. So what does Paul do? He prays for it, and then how are we taught to pray if you went to Sunday school maybe one day? I didn't go to Sunday school. I didn't grow up, so you know this better than I. But I've heard, because I didn't grow up in a church, that you would be taught how to pray, and you'd say, pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And so here we have the pattern Dear Father, blah, 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 blah. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, that's pretty much what you got here. You hear Paul praying to the Father with this spiritual wisdom, understanding, and with all power. And then, where you would expect to hear in the name of Jesus Christ, he goes to a hymn. A hymn that is this great doxological way of defining of, he's wanting to talk through what we mean in the name of Jesus Christ. He's doing it because he understands that the Colossians, like us today, and by the way, Paul does the exact same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. It's interesting. He knows that the Colossians are struggling to believe in the sufficiency of Christ, Christ alone, sufficient to get me to that promised land. And so what follows then is this ancient hymn. It's evident by the syntax and the meter usage that's there. Hymns in that day particularly, remember, these were not people who were a reading culture. They didn't have books. They didn't have theology. They didn't even have a Bible they could pick up in the morning and read. So, you know, hymns were very important in terms of training and catechizing the early church. So he speaks a hymn that would have been very memorable. And what the hymn does, very basically is having given thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in this great inheritance. That's what I've been talking about, right? The inheritance of, of this promised life, this thing we all yearn for. Having given thanks to the Father who qualified you, based on the work of Christ back then, 2,000 years ago, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, now, he says, in Jesus' name, in a manner that is sung. And when he sings it, oh my gosh. You get in all these indicatives, what we call facts. And all nestled in there is this one subjunctive, if you know grammar terms. That means there's this result or purpose clause. All these facts 
And then there it is in verse 18, in order, and I'm reading it from the Greek in a wooden way, in order that Christ might in all things or ways be first. Why do we pray in the name of Christ? Because Christ is sufficient. He is preeminent. He alone has the power and the wisdom sufficient to get you to that promised land that you yearn for. And you say, well, how so? We'll do it again. Remember, he's praying for the filling of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is all you need. It's going to fill it up. And then when he tells you about Christ, it's very interesting because the hymn goes like this. Part one, the work of Christ summarized. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom of his beloved son. Two different kingdoms. The kingdom of this world that seems to be going in a really bad way, which brings me all my cynicism. And if you know me, I am very cynical and it's hard to get beyond it sometimes. And then there's this other kingdom. And a kingdom that Paul has argued elsewhere is just emerging. It's just beginning right now. But it's there. One day, it'll be fully there. How are you going to get there? The work of Christ is delivering us into this domain of darkness, from this domain of darkness, transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. Why is he sufficient? Here is where you get one of the greatest doxological statements of Jesus Christ you'll ever read. He says it this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Stop. What he means there, he is human. He is human. The image of God. Remember Adam and Eve and all of humanity? He image. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. And yet he's been given power and authority over all creation. He is Adam with steroids. <laughs> he's Adam given all power and authority of nomenclature, of, of which is to establish an authority over the whole world under him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things, notice all these alls. All things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. And on it goes, five alls. That's the point. He's praying that we might be filled with the knowledge of God that's under salvation. That we be filled with the power of God that can hold us and that can empower us and give us life that we need in order to get there. And therefore, why? Because he can fill us because he has it all all the power. He has it all, all the authority. He has it all, all the wisdom. You see the logic. In the name of Jesus, I pray. I hope never again you will pray that quite the same after this sermon. In the name of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, he is human. He is rightfully, therefore, able to mediate for me. And that's when he gets to this other phrase. He says, and therefore he is what? Given who he is and all that I just said, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Notice the word body. We tend to figurative that real quick. He means literally bodies. 
flesh. He is the ultimate flesh, human, of the church. Now, what does it mean, the head? This is a covenant term. It's this idea, and you just listen carefully because I want to say it pretty quickly. It's this idea that God has established in his economy of salvation a way wherein we can be saved by virtue of someone who represents us in a covenantal contract with God. It's a condescension on the part of God to try to get it to us and make it access to us. And when he says that Christ is the head of the church, it means that as our federal representative, he is authorized by the Father to act on behalf of us. His actions become, in effect, our actions. And we receive the gift of that because it is a gift by faith, which faith is not a work. It's just a want. You want it, that's kind of faith, right? You want it, you ask, it's given. Faith. Paul says in Ephesians, of course, we're saved by grace through faith. We've already talked about sola fide, faith alone. It's not faith plus works, faith plus enthusiasms, faith plus emotion, faith plus, you know, a, a political right way, faith plus the ethical system of this. It's just faith in Christ, sufficient, because of this covenant relationship that has been established between Christ, the second Adam of the human race, and the human race. Now, I, that's a beautiful story. It's a story that I wish I could tell you more about, but I just can't stop because we need to get to some of the other stuff. But just think of what's happening. The way I would think of it this way is, let's imagine that you, um, look, let's don't imagine that you're in, uh, say, ninth grade, because this, this little illustration would not work at all. Let's imagine you're in first grade. And let's imagine that the teacher says to you, you know, who's your daddy? Or who's your mama? Now, a first grader would say, my daddy, my mama. You hear the chest coming out? Hopefully, ordinarily. I know that we live in a fallen world and there's a lot of hurt and pain, and that's not my point right now. But just for the sake of illustration. And what they would be saying is, look, I'm talking about that one person that I think is the smartest person in the world. And I'm talking about that one person that, man, I think has got all the power in the world. I mean, they can do anything. They can put cheeseburgers on my plate. They can do this. They, make, they got the authority to do this. That's my mama. That's my daddy. And that person, because if you know little kids, they're kind of narcissistic. They think their daddy is the best, always. You know, in a good way of being narcissistic at that stage. Just hopefully it matures somewhere down the line. But man, my dad, my mom, you know. And then what they're going to say is something like this, that they can do anything. And they're always right. That's first grade. Now, again, Ninth grade, it's all over. What is these things they're saying? They're saying what Paul is trying to get you to feel as a child of God. Jesus Christ, the most powerful, the most wise, the very person who has authority over everything and everybody. Really, he does. One who is both human, that he can he can rightfully represent you and act for you, one who is God, who is the creator of the universe. He's your daddy. He's your covenant head. I, I don't know. I'm trying to get you to feel this passage, not just intellectually understand it. And that's what Paul's saying. In the name of Christ. 
And therefore, he goes back to this idea. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is one, at once the image of God, the invisible God. That is, he's human. And now in verse 19, he is the fullness of God who was pleased to dwell in him. He is God. This is the mystery. But again, what is so important is that this person, Jesus Christ, the image of God, human, the fullness of God, divine, it says that it is through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether while he was on earth or while he is in heaven. Did you hear that? Bingo. There's the problem. We fail to think seriously about what it means that Christ is who Christ is in heaven right now, alive, bodily, and the mystery of that. Now, don't go there with me right now. I don't know exactly what that looks like. But we know clearly resurrection and ascension from all the witnesses and testimonies and you who were once therefore alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds even have now been reconciled notice this he's this is serious theology going on here in the body of flesh by his death in the body of flesh in his death now let me just spell this out really quickly for you the scriptures teach, of course, that Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man for humans. By virtue of his dual nature, both God and human, he is representing God and human because of who he is. And then we've got to ask the question, was that applicable just to the cross 2,000 years ago? Or is that applicable to us today? You can go home and read it. I was going to read it, but I think I just want to move on. That, this, that, it, that if you wanted to read some of this, you can read Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 describes Christ and his work for our salvation while he's in heaven. Three things that he does. He's described as interceding for us. What's cool about this passage is it describes him as interceding for us with his blood. Now, maybe you haven't thought about this. Let's go back again in deference to our brothers and sisters who believed in the Mass. The idea that they're, in order for, for, my, for Christ's sacrifice 2,000 years ago to be applied to me today with all my new sins, we need to have yet another sacrifice every week, every day if we could, in order to have that once sacrifice connected to a yet another sacrifice that I could have a new sacrifice applied to my life every day. Sound good, right? But notice suddenly what happened here. It's a sacrifice that is now at the control of humans. Who could come, who can't, and also in a manner that could be manipulated by humans. You see what was going on? Indulgences and all these other things. Merits. Hebrews and the reformers went back to Hebrews and says, no, we don't get what you're saying. Jesus is still in the flesh. In the flesh. Did you hear what I read there in Colossians? In the flesh, it said. He is still taking his blood 
of sacrifice offered 2,000 years, once and ago, once and for all, that satisfied, it's finished, all the righteousness of God that was reckoned, that was reckoned to us by grace through faith. But every new sin, every time, I imagine the conversation very fictitiously like this. Preston, like he does every single Sunday, I'm Preston if you don't know, Preston every single day sits down in this altar and pretty much every morning, and when I start confessing my sins, I find myself confessing the same sin over and over and over and over and over again. I do. I mean, yes, I think God's given me some grace to, to move in various steps, but what I'm also finding is that sin is deeper than I thought, and so it's not just that I threw the bottle out or something when I became a Christian back a long time ago. It's stuff to find the bottle that's still in my life, and I'm still struggling with. And so there we go. I confess my sins every time. Son, the same sins. Have you felt that way? Now, if you're honest, does that make you feel a little cynical that anything's happening in your life? <laughs> now, this is the transaction that I could imagine fictitiously. Again, I don't think it would be like this, but just fictitiously. So one day, finally, God's had enough. And he says, crap, I'm just sick and tired of forgiving the same sins over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I'm not sure there's really sincerity here. I'm not sure this guy's really legit. I don't know. Maybe he's just playing the religious game, playing the little card. Jesus Christ, in your name I pray, amen. And so I'm beginning to wonder, is he still going to forgive me? And here's where Jesus comes in according to Hebrews 4. Jesus walks in that door and says, no, no. I'm advocating for him. Here. I am over and over and over and over and over. How many times? Seven times seven. You know what he said? Over and over and over. He's still working to advocate for you. When you sin, he teaches in Romans chapter 5 that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more infinitely because it was an infinite flesh that shed an infinite blood on my behalf and it is infinitely being brought to Christ presently, present tense in Hebrews 4. Go look at it advocating for us, interceding for us as one who sympathizes what with, with us. Why? Because he's human. He knows temptation. He knows frailty and brokenness. But he's God. He persevered perfectly and is doing so for us right now. You know the doctrine we call the perseverance of the saints? It's really the perseverance of God in Jesus Christ on behalf of the saints. You go live it, read it. I could just talk about this all day. So I want you to stop and as we close and just ask yourself, have you really thought long and hard enough about what Paul's praying here? That when you say, God, forgive me of my sins in Jesus' name, when you say, God, bring me my, that life in Jesus' name, when you start yearning and wanting the world and life to be better in Jesus' name, are you believing that in his name, based on his authority that is, based on his power that is, based on his wisdom, that everything that is needed for that prayer to be answered, yes, is sufficient in Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus and. I think we struggle with that no less than probably the church struggled with it in 500 years. It's the application 
of Christ and his work for our salvation that we tend to say, and. And so very subtly, our actions and our passions betray us. Here's the way that Calvin in the Reformation said it. He, Jesus Christ, therefore sits on high, transfusing us by his power that he might quicken us to spiritual life, sanctify us by his spirit, adorn the church with diverse gifts of his grace and power, keep it safe from all harm by his protection, restrain the raging enemies of his cross and of our salvation by the strength of his hand, and finally hold all power in heaven and on earth on our behalf. Dang, that's a great quote. Do you believe that? Can we just get rocked out of our socks for a minute on this stuff? And that's the old stodgy John Calvin, for God's sake. He's not stodgy if you've ever read him. Don't read Calvinists. They're not very good at him, but he's good. It's incredible what's going on here. So here's what I want us to think about. C.S. Lewis was, was really amazing in the screw tape letters. I know, I know, if you've been here... Preston, you seem to quote that a lot. I do. I, I, wanted, I try to read it every year, at least once. Here's what he said about this issue, the sufficiency of Christ, solus Christus. What we want, he says, if men, he's, this is screw tape talking, what we want if men become Christians at all is to keep them in the state of Christianity and. I love that. Let me say again. What we want if Men become Christians at all. In other words, let's try to keep them from being Christians. But if they're Christians, we'll concede that. What we want is to keep them in a state of Christianity and. Now, he then goes on and describes the ands of his day, some of which I'm not even sure what he's talking about. He says this, you know, Christianity and the crisis. What would that be for us? Maybe it's Christianity and Trump-Clinton crisis being resolved. Maybe it's Christianity and a new psychology. Christianity and the new order. He's talking, this is him, all these were his. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and the psychic research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and the spelling reform. What the heck was that? You can tell me later. If they must be Christians, just let at least them be Christians with a deference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring of faith and work on their horror of the same horror of the same old thing. Ooh, does that speak to my heart? The same old thing. The tendency, and I've seen it now many times over my 30 plus years of ministry is after you've been in Christianity just for a little while, don't you forget I've said this, if you haven't done this, it just gets a little old, the same old thing. And you stop really believing in those what we call ordinary means of grace. A government that's that's given over our lives and the life of the church, a shepherding government that really could be gospel-centered if you did it right. A, a, A knowledge relative to the cross and him crucified power relevant to the work of the Spirit through sacraments and through one another and the communion of saints. Now, those things are the same old thing. But what's really interesting is there have been great and 
and I'm going to say the word enthusiastic. I don't want to use a word that may label a denomination or anything. But, but there have been great and enthusiastic movements throughout the age. Where are they? There was an interesting study in American history, and it was the 19th century Reformation, the revivals. I mean, 19th century revivals in America. And those revivals had a peculiar element to them. That they, they, they devised all kinds of what was called new measures, new ways to usher in the coming of the kingdom of God. It was very, and there's a whole theology behind this, and, and, and so I'm not going to say it, but, but there was a whole theology that made sense of the fact that now we've got to construct certain kinds of musical devices that the Holy Spirit will use to convince people to make decisions. We're going to have to come up with all sorts of, of liturgical devices, like the, the, the anxious bench and, and things of this nature that would, that would sort of manipulate people's emotions and minds. But that was okay because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's like a lawyer who, who, who argues you into the kingdom of God, it was said. Now, little did they know, at least some of these guys who were pretty much lay preachers like Finney and some of these others, that they were just repeating what was being done in the 4th century called Pelagianism. But here's the thing. Scholars and historians have studied the, the, the revival where there was great and, and emotional and enthusiastic gatherings of people around amazing emotional experiences. People being slayed in the spirit. And they studied it 10 years, the church 10 years later. And you know what they found? The church 10 years later had not grown, but decreased. What happened? Where did all these people who flocked into these revival services, who made these great conversion experiences, where'd they go? It was the sermon that went right out the back door about three years later wasn't the power of Christ and him crucified sufficient. You see, the moment we add something to it, you're going to become a cynical man or woman eventually, and it's not going to work. And what are you going to do? You're going to blame it on Jesus, and you're going to leave. Same study was done about eight years ago in Boston, Massachusetts. Huge, maybe you remember it, some of you, there was a huge sort of influx of, of students in the student ministries there. There was this great, amazing work of God that everyone was talking about. Veritas forms were growing. The blank forms were growing. And all these things were growing. And there were some sociologists, those little pesky sociologists, they actually did a little study of these people. They, they tracked them five years after they had left college. Most of them. Solus Christus. I hope you hear this message. He's sufficient. Don't get bored with it. The Bible, prayer, the communion of saints, sacraments, preaching in the name of God, exposition, you know, that kind of makes you work a little bit. The power of God and the salvation. Go home tonight if you want and read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 if you want a feedback or follow-up to this passage. Just read it. Some seek signs, as in fantastic emotional experiences and power. Some seek wisdom. The Greeks, the Jews' signs, the Greeks went. But I preach nothing, nothing, save Christ and the crucified. So was Christus.